Good afternoon. That's not good, is it? You're all asleep already. Good afternoon, everyone. Excellent. Um, if you don't know me, um, uh, Luke, don't choose me. I'm, I'm Jai. Um, I'm one of the members here. Um, I work in Sheffield as a web developer um, by day. Um, <laughs> I don't know where I'm going with that. <laughs> by night, I am a superhero. But I can't tell you about that. Um, I just want to say before I start today that, that this is um, this has not been the easiest passage to prepare um, for a number of reasons, but uh, mainly because it's it's quite a difficult passage. I think um, there are, there are lots of difficult passages in Genesis. This is probably not the most difficult one, um, but it's but it's not the easiest either. Um, and I say that not for your sympathy, um, but to encourage you to have your Bibles open um, as as we go through it. Um, because it's, it's not kind of immediately obvious what, what the answers are. Um, so yeah, so it'd be really helpful um, for you to have your Bibles open there, and um, if you're someone who likes to make notes, it's probably helpful as well. Um, you should have a Bible in front of you, um, in your pew, um, a, a Red Church Bible. If you don't, um, put your hand up and someone will come and, come and bring you one, I'm sure. Um, so we're in Genesis chapter 25, um, and that's on page 26, if you've already closed it. Um, so uh, you can find that um, and uh, yeah let, let me just um, pray uh, for God's help before we get going Heavenly Father uh, I thank you for your word and thank you that you have uh, given it to us um, to, to teach us and to train us in righteousness Lord and um, I pray that you would um, help us today, Lord, would, um, would you use my words and would you um, work in our hearts to, to change us through your word, Lord. Amen. So, um, since um, it's going to be a difficult passage, I thought we would start today with a bit of a, a fun game, and it's a game of Spot the Difference. Um, I don't know if anyone is a fan of Spot the Difference. Um, it's not a really difficult one, um, but I'm going to show you pictures of two people and I just want you to, for a couple of minutes, um, talk to the person next to you and discuss the, uh, the differences between these two, two people. Um, as I say, it's not that difficult. Um, so just, just for a couple of minutes, have a chat to the person next to you. This is, um, if you don't know, by the way, on the left we've got um, the Queen, um, the Queen of the UK and a number of other countries. Um, and on the right we've got Donald Trump, the current President of the United States. So... Go for it, you've got a couple of minutes. Okay, uh, I'll stop you there. 
Um, I hope you got a good uh, good chat about that and a, and a good laugh. Does anyone want to shout out anything that you discussed? She's got a hat on. Yes, excellent. He's orange. Yep, yep, very much so. <laughs> excellent. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sure you could think of hundreds of differences between the two of them. Um, if you'd have said one of them is a reptilian shapeshifter, you'd have been wrong because they both are, if you believe the conspiracy theories, um, which I discovered in searching for the picture of the Queen. Um, so, don't search for pictures of the Queen. Um, <laughs> uh, but I want to I focus on one difference, really, and that's um, how they got into power, how they inherited their title and office from their predecessor. Um, and, and obviously, they, um, they're both heads of state, um, of their, their respective countries, um, but they got there in different ways. Um, so the, the Queen, let's start with the Queen, um, uh, the office of the monarch of the United Kingdom is, is a hereditary one. It's passed down um, through the family line from um, you know, father to son, mother to daughter, etc. Um, so the Queen, um, when she pops her clogs, it'll be Charles on the throne, um, maybe, unless he's gone before her, which seems likely. <laughs> Or more increasingly likely, um, and then and then you know his his eldest child, William, and then George. Um, whereas the president of the United States is an elected position. Um, so every every four years the president changes, um, and um, they they are elected by the people. Um, so uh, just as a side note, by the way, here's a here's an interesting stat here. Did you know that the uh, president of the United States? is the most dangerous job in the world. There have been 43 different presidents, not, not including Donald Trump, and eight of them have, been, have died in office. Um, that is a nearly 20% mortality rate um, in that job, which is pretty high. So just, anyway, that's, it's not really relevant. I just thought it was interesting. Um, so the, the, what was the point of the game? The point was to introduce you to the idea of inheritance, um, things being passed down from one person to another, uh, and, and to show that there are different different ways of doing that, different um, means by which inheritance happens, um, and, and there are you know there are not just those two ways, there are there are hundreds more. Um, those are just two of the different ways. So we're continuing our series in the Book of Genesis today, um, the first book of the Bible. It's the the origin story, the origin of the world, and the origin of God's rescue plan for His people. Um, if you've been here over the last couple of weeks, um, you'll know that God called a pagan man, um, Abraham, and gave him three promises. Um, that he would have a land of his own, that he would be the father of a great nation, uh, and that he would be a blessing to the other nations. But those promises would not be fulfilled within Abraham's lifetime. It would be his descendants who inherited those promises from him. God promised Abraham that his children would be as numerous as the stars in the sky, as the, the particles of dust um, on the earth, and the nations would come from him. So God's plan to rescue humanity and to bring us back into relationship with him uh, sent, will center on Abraham and on his family. And the original readers of Genesis would be this family. They would be the, the Israelite people who knew that they were God's chosen people. Um, and in the story today, uh, we're going to see the answer to the, to the question of how this happened, 
how the promise came to be inherited by the nation of Israel. Uh, But this is not um, a history lesson, um, because God's people today are also inheritors of that promise. The promise isn't um, passed down in in exactly the same way, uh, in the sense of coming through Abraham and his his physical offspring. Um, But I think that the principles um, that that are here are very much relevant to us um, as the church today. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Um, Before we go any further, some of you might have spotted that we've skipped some verses. Um, I don't know whether this was deliberate um, or not, but I I think we should uh, read them, uh, because I think that it's important um, to the the story. So, um, verses 12 to 18. Um, If you've got your Bibles open, they're on page 26, Genesis 25, verse 12. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Ishmael, whom Sarah's slave, Hagar the Egyptian, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael listed in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the first son of Ishmael, Kedar, Adbil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tima, Jita, Naphish, and Kedemar. These were the sons of Ishmael, and these are the names of the twelve tribal rulers according to their settlements and camps. Ishmael lived 137 years. He breathed his last and died, and he was gathered to his people. His descendants settled in the area area from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt, as you go towards Asher. And they lived in hostility towards all the tribes related to them. It's not the most gripping stuff. Uh, It's a difficult one to read because of the names. Don't take my word from it on the pronunciation. They're probably all wrong. Um, but there is an important point here um, you might have noticed that verse 12 sounds a whole lot like verse 19 look down at verse 12 this is the account of Abraham's son Ishmael verse 19 this is the account of the family line of Abraham's son Isaac I think this is deliberate the author is making a, a comparison between Ishmael and Isaac and actually if you look through Genesis there are quite a few of these um, scattered throughout, and they they act as kind of like headings for that particular section of the book. Um, We're not going to go through them now, but um, as a bit of homework, if you're someone who likes to uh, go away and read in your own time, um, go and have a look and see how many you can find through Genesis. So, uh, verses 12 to 18 are the story of Ishmael and his descendants, his his sons, his death, where he lived, um, all that sort of thing. Seven verses in total. But the story of Isaac and his descendants, well, I mean, that, that's really the rest of the Old Testament. Um, but the, the next of these headings comes in chapter 36. So at least ten and a half chapters are about the family of Isaac. If it wasn't already absolutely clear by God's dealings with Abraham earlier on, uh, Ishmael is not the child of promise. Isaac is How God promised Abraham that he'd be the father of many nations, uh, and Ishmael was, um, the the Ishmaelites were one of those nations, among others. But God also said that Abraham would be the father of a great nation. Lots of nations would come from him, but only one would inherit the promises of God. Many offspring, but only one 
line of inheritance, one seed. Just then, flick back with me in Genesis a few pages to chapter 17. It's on page 17, which is helpful. So, Genesis 17, uh, and we'll start reading at verse 17. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of ninety? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Then God said, Yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of twelve rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. So it's, it's only Isaac, not Ishmael, and not any of Abraham's other sons, and that, that the promise is passed down to, that God makes his covenant with. And, and so, so that's it. That, that's Ishmael, that's the, the brief sidetrack into Ishmael's line. And we're back with the, the chosen people. So, I think there are, there are two uh, main things that we can learn from our passage today, verses 19 to 34. Uh, we're going to spend most of our time on the first point, uh, that God's promises are inherited in God's way. Uh, and secondly, we'll see that God's people have faith in God's promises. Um, so, let's, let's get into the passage then. The first few verses get us up to speed. Um, if we're just kind of dropping in here, um, uh, Isaac is the son of Abraham. He's married to Rebecca. He's 40 years old. Um, but you probably knew that already. Uh, and we, we also know that Isaac is the child of promise. We've established that the promise is transmitted from father to son. So at this point in the story, um, we're looking out. We, we know that you know, Isaac is married. Um, we're looking out for his son the one who would be the heir to the promise. But there's a problem. Isaac doesn't have one, but two sons, twins, in fact. And God tells Rebecca that they will become two different nations. If the promise is only for one nation, which one is it going to be? Which son will the promise come through? As I've said, it's not. This is not just a like theoretical thing. Uh, it's really relevant to us. Um, it, it would have allowed the Israelites to kind of uh, trace their family heritage to see how they became God's chosen people. Um, and in the same way, it allows us to see um, how we uh, become God's chosen people. And I think as we do, uh, it'll give us security and confidence and joy. Um, so I think there are, there are three things um, in the passage um, that, that shows about the way God works to call his people. First of all, uh, you've got them all up there, spoilers, um, so you can see where we're heading. Uh, so first of all, uh, we see that the promise comes by God's power 
and not by human ability. Um, Look with me at verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. Uh, Now this is uh, slightly different to some translations which I think might be more accurate which say um, barren, that that Rebecca was barren. She, um, she, She didn't just not have any children, she was not able to have any children. Uh, it's, a, it's a familiar story in Genesis, isn't it? This was a huge deal for Abraham and Sarah. God made them a promise of having loads of children and grandchildren, but immediately there was this, uh, this big obstacle in the way. And that same obstacle is, is right here with Isaac and Rebecca. If Rebecca can't have any children, then the promise is stopped in its tracks. But Abraham has clearly taught his son what to do when he's faced with a problem like this. Let's have a look. Uh, carrying on in verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife Rebecca became pregnant. On their own, Isaac and Rebecca could not uh, manufacture an inheritor of the promises. They were totally helpless. And did you notice how differently they responded to Abraham and Sarah in the same position? Abraham and Sarah were in in this situation too, knowing God's promise, but unable to have children. Uh, But they tried to take things into their own hands. They thought that they could force God's promises into being. And so Abraham had uh, a child... Uh, Ishmael that we saw earlier have a child with Sarah's servant but Isaac didn't do that he knew from his parents experience that that was a futile thing to do so instead he prayed and God answers his prayer notice as well that it's not uh, an immediate answer Uh, look on to verse 26 Uh, at the end of verse 26 says, Isaac was 60 years old when Rebecca gave birth to them. And how old is he at the start? He's 40. That is 20 years where he's had to be patient, prayerful, waiting on God to answer his prayer. What a great challenge that is for us to be uh, patient in prayer. And Isaac's patience pays off. God works a miracle and Rebecca becomes pregnant. So it's not by human ability that the promise comes, but it's by God's power. Secondly, we see that the promise comes not by human wisdom, but by God's choice. Now, Rebecca is is pregnant, not president. She's pregnant, praise God. The first obstacle is overcome. There is going to be a child Uh, who the promise can be passed on to. But it's not quite that simple. Um, Let's read from verse 22. The babies uh, jostled each each other within her. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. 
One people will be stronger than the other, and the elder will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hands grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. Uh, people often say how amazing it is to feel a baby kicking um, before it's been born. Well, Rebecca didn't think so, because she had twins, and instead of kicking her belly, they were, like, kicking each other. Uh, you all know what sibling rivalry is like, but this is taking it to, to a new level, I think, fighting even before they were born. They're, they're jostling for position, jostling for, you know, who's going to be born first. I guess with twins, one of them has got to be born first. Uh, and in, in that culture, that was, it, it was really important who was born first. Because the majority of a man's inheritance would go to the firstborn. In fact, the rules said um, that he would get a double portion. So if there were two children, the firstborn would get everything. That probably seems pretty unfair to most of us. Um, but that's, that's the way it was. I mean, I don't see a problem with it myself, but that might just be because I'm the eldest sibling. So, you know, it would work out well for me. Um, I'm, not, I, I'm not saying that the babies knew about this as they were in the room, by the way. Um, but but it, anyway, it's Esau that wins, and he, he makes it out first. He wins the fight, uh, and Jacob is hot on his heels, quite literally. I thought that would get more of a laugh, but it's okay. So, uh, surely um, Esau will be the child of promise. Well, no. There's a spanner in the works. Because uh, Rebecca goes to God before she gives birth, and God tells her that he's going to turn this cultural norm on its head. It was going to be the younger sibling who would get the inheritance, not the older one. It'd be like Harry taking the throne instead of William. There'd be there'd be uproar. Or it'd be like um, it'd be like Hillary Clinton being made president instead of Donald Trump, despite losing the election. Can you imagine the outrage and the protests that would have resulted from the election if that had happened? Anyway, um, we we do see that scenario play out in Genesis. Um, as Jacob, the older brother, sorry, Jacob, the younger brother, is, is the one who gives birth to God's people. And Esau, the older brother, uh, gives birth to a different nation, the nation of Edom, who were a wicked people who didn't know God. Did you notice as well that there isn't really a reason given as to why Jacob is chosen over Esau? Now, I want to I explore that point a little bit. Um, because the Apostle Paul picks up on it in the New Testament uh, in his letter to the, the church in Rome. So uh, we're going to turn there now. Um, if you want to keep your finger in Genesis, because we will be coming back to it, uh, and we're going to turn to Romans chapter 9. I'll tell you a page number when I get there. Uh, one page, 1136. 
page 1136, Romans chapter 9, um, and we're going to jump in at verse 10. It says, um, not only that, but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Um, you might want to keep your finger in, in Genesis and Romans. We might, we might do a bit of flicking back and forth. Um, just so you know. So, the wisdom of the time would say, pass the inheritance onto the older son. I guess the, the wisdom of today would probably say, pass the inheritance on to the, to the most, to the most able. So, like if, I'm kind of thinking about, um, a business owner who wants to, you know, pass his business on when he retires to one of his kids. He's going to want to choose the one who, you know, is the most able. Um, to, to take over from him, the one who's going to work hard and run the company well. But God doesn't give a reason, really, why he chooses Jacob over Esau. Humanly speaking, there there is no reason for Jacob to be the child of promise above Esau. But God chooses for his sovereign purposes one over the other. In fact, it says he loves Jacob and hates Esau. Um, I don't think it means he, he actually hates Esau. I think it's um, uh, it's kind of that thing where you know Jesus says, you know, anyone who doesn't hate his family for me, it's it's kind of the um, it's love, love me above the other one. So it's not actual hate, but it's like he loves Jacob more than he loves Esau. But just because there's no, uh, no human reason or no, no reason that God communicates with us, that doesn't mean that God doesn't have his own reasons. I'm not saying this is just an arbitrary thing. God isn't uh, flipping a dice, uh, flipping a coin, rolling a dice, or playing eeny, meeny, miny, mo. you know, like a, a child. I think God is more like uh, a skilled painter who is choosing the perfect colours for his masterpiece. He's got a plan. He's got a vision in mind of what the finished product is going to be. So he has a purpose for, for everything on his palette, every stroke of the brush. So the promise is passed on, not according to human wisdom, but according to God's choice. Thirdly and finally, basis for the, the passing on of the promise is not human goodness, but God's grace. That is, God doesn't make his promises to people who are obedient to his law, but to sinners who don't deserve it. And thank goodness that he does, because otherwise the promise would be, it would be dead before it even got off the starting blocks. Now, seeing that Jacob is going to be the one to inherit the promise, and the next ten chapters are all about his story, so 
you know, over the next um, weeks and, and months, we're going to get to know him quite well. Uh, but for now, let's see what this passage tells us about Jacob. First of all, uh, he's going to be a bit of a dodgy character, a kind of con artist. So if you're in Romans, come back to Genesis. Um, let's have a look at how Jacob is introduced. Uh, and we're looking at verse 26 of Genesis 25. Uh, after this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. You might think that doesn't really tell us anything. Something a bit weird about holding his brother's foot. Um, but that's about it. Well, in Hebrew, names are, are pretty important. I mean, if you remember how um, Abraham and Sarah had their names changed from Abram and Sarai. Um, a name tells you a lot about who a person is going to be. Uh, and hopefully, uh, in your Bibles, uh, I've not checked this, um, but I think it does. Uh, yeah, there's a little footnote um, at the bottom of the page that tells us what Jacob means. It says, uh, Jacob means he grasps the heel, a Hebrew idiom for he deceives. Uh, so, so that's what that's what Jacob means. It's that kind of idea of um, trying to get ahead of someone in a sneaky way. Can you think of anyone else in Genesis who is described as a deceiver? How about the serpent in the garden in chapter three, who lies about God to Adam and Eve, um, so that they would sin against Him by eating the fruit? I'm not saying that uh, Jacob is the devil. Um, just put that out there. Uh, obviously not. But uh, I'm just saying that, that the writer of Genesis um, clearly thinks that deception is not a good thing. Um, he's already established that it is sinful behaviour. So he's clearly making some comment on Jacob's morality or, or his lack of it, you could say. So that's one thing we learn about him. Uh, secondly, he's got no compassion, even towards his own brother. He's just out for himself. Let's read the second half of the passage to remind us of that story. So, uh, starts at verse 27. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, First, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Esau's been out in the country all day. He's been trying to find uh, something to kill and to eat for his tea, but clearly he's not been successful. He gets home, he's absolutely starving, and uh, Jacob's got this lovely pot of lentil stew on the go. It might not sound appetizing to you, but I guess if you're really, really hungry, um, you, know, you, you might find it 
I found it appealing. But Jacob isn't just going to give it over. He wants something for it. He wants the birthright. He wants the right to inherit uh, not only his, his father's land and property, but the promises of God as well. And he saw accepts the offer. He gets his food, but he loses the birthright. And even though this is the working out of the word of God that was given to Rebecca earlier, it doesn't diminish the lack of compassion that Jacob shows to his brother. It is a totally heartless, uh, self-serving thing to do. So that's the second thing we learn about Jacob. He's got, he's got no compassion. And the third thing we learn is that he's part of a really dysfunctional family. I mean, this is scattered right throughout uh, Genesis. Um, Just read um, read verse 28 again with me. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So for a start, we've got favoritism there from the parents, and consequently, uh, marital conflict. There's obviously conflicts between the brothers themselves as well, and we'll, we'll see more of that um, over the next few chapters, as Jacob just seems to get himself involved in conflict all over the shop. And Isaac and Esau are shown to be men who are ruled mostly by their physical desires, by their stomach, really. So this is Jacob. He's not painted in a brilliant light, you could say. He's not a morally upstanding man, a fine character, but a deceiver. Someone who puts himself first. Someone who comes from a a really dysfunctional family. And yet, this man is the one through whom the promise will come. And so we can conclude, along with Paul in Romans 9, if you remember, that it is not because of human goodness that God chooses his promised people, but it is by his grace, his undeserved kindness, towards people who disobey him. And yet, despite Jacob's dubious behaviour, the author clearly means for us to see a contrast between Jacob and Esau. So this is our second main point. That God's people have faith in God's promises. Uh, look back at uh, verse, uh, sorry, uh, the, last, the last verse of chapter 25, verse 34, the last sentence of it. So Esau despised his birthright. That is strong language. I, I don't think the author of Genesis makes very many um, like moral judgments. He kind of leaves that up to us. Uh, to work out. But here he's clearly showing us that Esau is the one in the wrong. Can you see that? Esau isn't really bothered about God's promises. He couldn't care less. Whether that's because uh, he doesn't believe them or if whether he's just not interested in what they've got to offer. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16 says, 
See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. As the writer to the Hebrews um, exhorts the Christians to live holy lives, he holds Esau up as a, as a counterexample. He's like, don't do it like this, guys. But Jacob, on the other hand, both believes God's promises and he sees their immeasurable worth as well. His actions might be misplaced, but his faith isn't. I think, I think we also see something of Isaac's faith in this passage. We've, we've already talked about uh, his, his prayer. He trusts in God to bring life rather than trying to do it himself. He trusts God that he would uh, carry his promise on. And so we see that God's people, his chosen people, are characterized by faith. Not by perfect obedience to his law, but by trust in him and his promises. And yet, what we said earlier is still true. God chooses based on his purposes, not based on things that we do. So the faith can't be the reason for God's choice. It must be the result of it. Clearly, uh, having faith and not having faith, Jacob and Esau are contrasted here in Genesis 25. And in Hebrews 12 as well. Um, They are good and bad, respectively. And remember what we read in Romans 9? Before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, God had already decided which of the brothers was going to inherit the promise. And so the promise was passed to Jacob. He was the child of promise. And his descendants would be the nation of promise. The rest of the Old Testament story is the story of this one nation which God chose to be his treasured possession. He would be with them in a way that he wasn't with any other nation. And all by his choice, according to his plan. When Jesus came there, uh, this, this all changed. Jesus was, he was a child of Israel. He was the offspring of Abraham that would bring these promises to their ultimate fulfillment. It would no longer be the nation of Israel that inherited them. Uh, let's, let's go back to Romans 9. Hope you've still got your finger in it. If not, it's page 1136. So, so far in Romans, um, Paul has been making a, a convincing case that it's not by keeping the works of the law that we are saved. It's not by being circumcised. It's not by um, observing the festivals. It's not by making sacrifices. And now he shows us that it's not to do with who your parents are either. So uh, Romans 9 verse 6, we'll start from. It's not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Not because they are his descendants are all, are all Abraham's children, 
are they all Abraham's children? Sorry, I'll read that again. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. So it is still Abraham's offspring who are uh, the children of promise, but now rather than his natural descendants who share his physical likeness, it's those who exhibit his spiritual likeness, those who have faith in God, in in his promises, in, in forgiveness of sin through Jesus. In the age of the new covenant, so the time that we're living in now, the church of Jesus Christ is the inheritor of God's promises. God's chosen people are Christians. They're you and me. People from all over the world, of every tribe and tongue and nation who trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So there's something different uh, in, in the in the method of the promises inheritance, but the principles that we saw earlier are still the same. So let's have a think about what this what this actually means for us. First of all, if you're not a Christian, I'm really glad that you've come and uh, and listened, and I hope that you found it interesting. But more than that, I hope that you uh, want to become part of God's family. Become a child, uh, a child of the promise. All it takes is faith that God will do all that he has promised to do. And because people inherit the promise in God's way, there's hope. Whatever your, your background, whatever you've done, whoever your family are, whatever your circumstances, there is no one too bad, there is no one too good, there is no one too too clever or too stupid. There are only those God chooses and those that he doesn't. And only God knows who he's chosen. But if you put your trust in him, you can be sure that you're on the right team. Christians, I want you to know that you are a child of the promise, not because of the things that you've done. Not because of your own self-effort, and not primarily because of the actions of others. You're not chosen according to human wisdom. You're not chosen for your giftedness. For the things that you do in the church, for your excellent long prayers, for your sacrifices of time and money, for coming to church on a Sunday, for your care for the sick and the elderly. You are not, uh, like Donald Trump, elected by a popular vote. Praise God that he didn't choose us, that he didn't 
you know, that he doesn't choose people based on those things. He chose you before the creation of the world. Before the earth was formed, before the sun and the moon and the stars were in the sky. And so if you have faith in him, if you are his treasured possession, then he will never let you go. It's possible for for kings and queens to be overthrown. It's possible for governments to be overthrown, for presidents to be uh, assassinated. But it is impossible for someone chosen by God to be unchosen by him. So you're not saved by works, what you do Your salvation rests not with yourself, but with God. On his choosing, according to his purposes, in his grace and his mercy. That's not a license to to sin as much as we want, but it gives us freedom to live all out for him. Without fear of it not being enough. It never could be enough. If we believe that it's down to something that we've done or that we can do, we're always going to live in fear of losing our status as a child of the promise. But if it's all down to God, there is no fear. Instead, there is security and confidence and joy. Security because nothing that you can do, no uh, circumstance of life, no uh, character flaw or moral failure, can take God's promise away from you. Confidence because we have a certain awesome future to look forward to. And joy which will flow naturally from those other two things. So, as children of the promise, live by faith in the faithful one who has called you and will never let you go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that um, that you have saved us through Jesus by your grace and by your mercy. Thank you that you chose us before the creation of the world, Lord, to be your chosen people, your treasured possession. Lord, would that be a great um, source of joy, comfort, of security and confidence to us and help us uh, to live by faith as your people. In Jesus' name, amen.